The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Brothers and sisters, tonight I'm going to approach the topic of self-control from a slightly different angle. All summer, on Wednesdays, we've been examining the fruit of the Spirit listed for us by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5. Tonight I'm going to be beginning our study of self-control from 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to ground our need for this fruit in what Peter has to say there and how self-control is rooted and related to other qualities before focusing solely on developing and practicing self-control in our lives. So at this time, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 and read along silently as I read aloud verses 3 to 11. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Second Peter is known as a general epistle because its audience are Christians in general not a specific church or region, as was the case with many of Paul's letters. Now, as we quickly move through the 2 Peter passage, we're going to identify three goals. We're going to identify the source of the power needed to reach these goals. Number three, the steps that are necessary to achieve these goals. And after these truths are established, we'll arrive at tonight's topic, self-control. We will also learn practical ways to develop and practice self-control. And lastly, we'll look to the model, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who perfectly demonstrated self-control. So in 2 Peter 1.8, we see our first goal is to avoid being ineffective. Or in other words, we want to be effective. Goal number one, to be effective or useful. In 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart is holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. 
So goal number one is to be effective or useful. Goal number two is to avoid being unfruitful or to be fruitful. In Matthew seven sixteen to 17, the Lord says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So goals one and two, we need to be effective and we want to be fruitful in the knowledge of Christ. In verse 10, goal number three is found. Peter says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Or as the King James Version puts it, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now, what does it mean to make your calling and election sure? Well, God knows those who are his, 2 Timothy 2.19, but we are not God. We are not all-knowing, even concerning the condition of our own hearts. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, clearly states that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, we can be self-deceived. Therefore, the Lord graciously gives us tests and evidences of our standing with him. In the chapter we've been working through this summer, Galatians 5, Paul refers to these evidences as the fruit of the Spirit. And thank God for his mercy and grace in providing such proofs for us. So we need to keep in mind our three goals as we move forward this evening. Number one is to be effective. Number two is to be fruitful. And number three is to make our calling and election sure. And now we draw attention to the source of the power needed to reach these goals. In verses 3 and 4, we read, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory, excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. You see, the source of our ability to reach our goals is Jesus' divine power. Yes, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, all things that pertain to life and godliness. First, we read, his divine power has granted us life, meaning eternal life, meaning our salvation, specifically our justification, our being declared righteous before the Father's throne. By the way, the phrase knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ always will refer to saving knowledge in tonight's text. Secondly, his divine power has granted us all things pertaining to godliness, or in other words, our walk with the Lord here on planet earth. In other words, life was justification, godliness will be our sanctification, the being set apart little by little for the worship of God and being conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So let's look at salvation briefly. He grants us salvation. In the book of Ephesians 1, 7, we read, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We've received forgiveness, brothers and sisters. We've received eternal life. That's the most important thing. But secondly, and very important as well, we have tonight's focus. And that is we have received all things pertaining to godliness, sanctification, or to right worship. To right worship. You see, all of life is worship. 
This godliness is dealing with living the life. It's dealing with walking the walk. And here are some of the all things that God grants us. Number one, the Lord grants us the Holy Spirit. If you remember in John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches us, who gives us understanding of his word, who convicts us of sin, who encourages us, and who unifies us in Christ. Amen? In fact, he dwells in each one of us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 explains that a Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit. The Lord also grants us his word, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is active, it's alive, it's sharp, and it reveals our hearts to us, Hebrews 4.12. The Bible also testifies from cover to cover about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said so himself in John 5.39. So the Lord grants us the Holy Spirit, he grants us his word, and the Lord also grants us the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 27, Paul writes this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, brothers and sisters, as with the word, the Holy Spirit is active in the church, empowering us through the gifts to pursue unity for mutual edification. That's what we're here for. Now, these tools are all related to each other and are instrumental in allowing us to achieve our goals. All this is made possible through the intimate saving knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, i.e. his effectual call to salvation. And as a result, the Lord granted us these precious promises. Number one, he granted us justification, as I said before, declaring us righteous in the Father's sight. He, de- he granted us adoption, declaring us children of God. He granted us sanctification, changing us daily into the image of Jesus Christ. And he grants us glorification, the future transforming of our corruptible, corruptible mortal bodies into incorruptible immortal ones. Now, it is through promises such as these that we may partake of the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean we turn into God. It doesn't mean we become gods. Rather, it's just another way of saying, of being born again, that we are now new creations in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And as a result of all these things, we have escaped the corruption or the decay that is in the world because of the sinful desires of the world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So these are the tools, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the church, given to us by the source, Jesus Christ, leading to right worship, the right worship of God, which is godliness. And ultimately, our three goals, which were effectiveness, fruitfulness, and assurance of salvation, will be accomplished through these tools. And right now, in verses 5 to 7, Peter will tell us the steps we need to take in order to achieve these goals. So 2 Peter 1, 5 to 7 reads like this. 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, depending on what version you have in front of you, it might not say supplement. It might say add to, as some translations read, add to this, add to this. But make no mistake, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So supplement means to bring alongside. It doesn't mean to add to. We can add nothing to the salvation which we've received except the sin that we were saved from. Amen? But Peter does tell us to do these things and to supplement our faith with these things. And as familiar as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is, it's not as easily recognizable as verse 10, but you know it. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember what James said. He said, claiming faith in Christ is not enough. It's what you do with that faith that demonstrates whether or not you actually possess it at all. Therefore, the Apostle Peter says we need to supplement our faith with the following qualities. I'll read them again. Virtue or excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And Paul says in our text this summer, Galatians 5, that we show our faith by walking in the Spirit, and the evidence of this is the fruit of the Spirit. As you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these two lists are so closely related. They both demonstrate true faith. They are evidences of God's saving grace. They are fruit of a spiritually-led person, one whom has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and leading them. And they're all important and inseparable. You see, just as being effective and fruitful cannot be separated from making our calling and election sure, Each of these qualities, virtues, and fruit are intertwined and build off each other. You can't show love without showing kindness. I mean, they're all mixed together. In fact, I would argue that all of these from 2 Peter and Galatians 5 must be at least developing in the life of a believer. There must be the small kernel there. We don't have them all perfect But they have to be there because they're not our fruit. They're the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if he dwells in us, they need to be there, at least in some way, shape, or form. That being the case, I'm going to briefly examine the qualities that Peter lists on our way to self-control. I will not review the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians as each Wednesday through the summer, we've been studying it and we've absorbed much. So back in 2 Peter, we're going to look at our list of qualities. Starting in verse 5, we see virtue. Virtue or excellence. Another word for this would be moral uprightness. When you think of virtue, we think of energy and effort in all good deeds done for the kingdom of God. Excellence in everything that we do. And secular as well as sacred duties. All life is worship. Everything we do, there's a chance to glorify God. Amen? And eagerness, if you will, to do all that you do to the glory of God. We're familiar with Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So number one, adorn your faith in Christ with excellence in all you do and in all your dealings with men. The next quality is knowledge. 
Now, Peter is going to address knowledge more extensively later on in the letter, especially when he combats the false prophets and teachers. And he says this, it stands to reason, well, I say this, that we need to continually seek to increase our knowledge of God and to keep refining our doctrine. You've heard the phrase reformanda, always reforming. We can't be stagnant. We need to continually study the word to know the Lord better. But this also has to do with moral knowledge. We know that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We need to study the word of God to know the knowledge of the good, knowing the right thing to do in light of his word. We need to be trained by the word so when different situations come in our way, we act in accordance with it. We don't study it to debate somebody. We study it to live by it. So number two, you adorn your faith in Christ with knowledge. The next quality is steadfastness. This was already covered by Steve Schultz in the summer. This has the connotation of being heroic or brave or having a patient endurance during trial and temptation. Think about it. We usually talk about being steadfast, but think about being brave, like you're, you're, you're meeting something head-on and you're holding firm, and that's during trial or temptation. It's not a detachment from it, but an active engagement of it. James tells us in chapter 1 of his letter that the testing of faith produces steadfastness or endurance. It's the quality of perseverance under temptation, trial, or attack. So Peter says, adorn your faith in Christ with steadfastness. Next, we come back to godliness. Godliness isn't God-likeness, and according to my research, the term is never used of God in Scripture. Rather, it means having a deep sense of dependence on God. So godliness means having a deep sense of dependence on God, leading to a life of deep devotion to God. Basically, it's the practical outcome of living out our profession of faith. You say you believe something, you need to act as if you actually believe that thing. This is so closely related to steadfastness and cannot truly be separated from it. All of these qualities as well as the fruit all mixed together. So adorn your faith in Christ with godliness or active dependence upon him. Number five, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is the quality of putting fellow believers first in your affections putting fellow believers, the church, first in your affections. David puts it beautifully in Psalm 16, verse 3, when he writes, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And the Lord Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Peter writes, adorn your faith in Christ with brotherly affection. And I would say with the pursuit of intimate relationships with your brothers or sisters in Christ. Spending time with them, serving them, listening to them, encouraging them, and most of all, praying for them. There's nothing better than getting a a text or, or, or a phone call saying, I'm praying for you, out of nowhere. That is such an encouraging thing to just thinking about you, praying about you. That's it. That's all it takes. We've all experienced that. Brotherly affection. Number six, love. Already covered by Gene during the summer. Mark twelve thirty one. love your neighbor as yourself. And ladies and gentlemen, neighbor means everyone. Christians, non-Christians, Muslims, Jews, atheists, Democrats, even Yankee fans. That's hard. 
The parable of the prodigal son confirms that without a doubt. Everyone. And what does this mean? Love everyone. It means be kind to everyone. It means be caring to everyone. And most importantly, it means share the gospel with everyone. That's the greatest act of love you could ever give anyone. Share the bad news. We're all sinners that need a savior. Then come alongside with the good news that Jesus is alive and he saves sinners. This is love, speaking the truth to a dying culture in a dying world. But don't stop there. Don't only speak the truth in love. Live the truth in love. Meet their felt needs as best as you can. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, get them a drink, etc., etc. Love your friends and love your enemies. Adorn your faith in Christ with love for all people. Amen. Now, I move quickly through these six qualities because in many respects, you've heard it all before. You're all nodding when I was reciting the scriptures. You know them better than I do. But now I'm going to camp out on what I really wanted to talk about, and I've shown a lot of self-control up until now. I must confess I haven't heard many sermons on self-control in over 20 years of being a believer. I've heard it tagged on to the ends of messages, especially sermons in Galatians 5, but I've hardly heard it given its proper due. So about four years ago, right here in this pulpit, I preached on 2 Peter chapter 1 on this very topic. And I'd love to tell you that after preparing and preaching this topic 160 weeks ago, that I would be the paragon of self-control. Sadly, I am not. Just ask my wife. I've come a long way, and for that I'm thankful to the source of the change, which is God himself, the means he uses the word, the church, and my family, But you see, my family sees so much more than you see. They see the grumbling, the complaining, the thanklessness, the discontentment, the inconsistency, the skewed priorities, the not counting it all joy, as James puts it, during trials. So it's in humility, great humility, and with gentle care, I will address this all-important topic one more time because I need to hear it. I needed to prepare it then. I needed to prepare it now. I needed it this very day. I don't think I'm alone, but even if I'm the only one in the sound of my voice that needs it, it's worth it. Because self-control is really important in the life of a believer. So now I am going to stop and pray for the remainder of the message that the Lord would open our hearts and minds. So please bow and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the unity of spirit that you've created here through your Holy Spirit and through the gospel. I pray right now that you would impress upon our hearts the seriousness of this topic, the timeliness of this topic. I pray that you would allow us to hear and you'd give us the ability to obey what you would have us do, that you would change us and that we and that I would in this way be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in this most important area. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Self-control is sorely lacking in Western Christianity. We are so emotionally driven. You just have to talk to Steve Schultz for a couple of minutes when he'll express his annoyance at the way people emote and they don't think. It's true. We have hair-triggered responses to everything. You see it in the streets, you see it in the stores, you see it when you drive your car, you see it at work, you see it in the media, you see it on the internet, you see it in the church, unfortunately, you see it in the home, and I see it in the mirror. 
We as American Christians on the whole lack self-control. And scripture says if we lack self-control, we lack the fruit of the spirit, we become ineffective, we blaspheme God's name, and we aren't sure if we're saved. Ladies and gentlemen, self-control is a big deal. According to Jerry Bridges, recently departed to be with the Lord, self-control is the believer's wall of defense against the sinful desires that wage war against his soul. I'll say that again. Self-control is the believer's wall of defense against the sinful desires that wage war against his soul. Hence, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Cities in the ancient world needed walls, impenetrable walls for privacy, defense, and to protect its inhabitants from danger from without. With all this talk about building a wall around the United States, we need to also consider building walls around our hearts to keep out the attacks from the enemy and also to keep in the things that we need to hold secure in our life. John MacArthur states that self-control has the connotation of literally holding oneself in. So what is self-control? Basically, self-control is control over your feelings or actions, restraint exercise over one's own impulses, emotions, or desires. Self-control is control over your feelings or actions, restraint exercise over one's own impulses, emotions, or desires. Therefore, the battle for self-control begins in our minds and our thoughts. So first, we have our minds and thoughts. We see something, we think something, we perceive a wrong done to us. Whether or not it's real, we perceive it. Or we see something we desire to have but probably shouldn't. In comes the inner struggle. Then from the mind and the thoughts, it goes right to the emotions. Whatever it is we're thinking triggers an emotional response. Proverbs 14, verse 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Another word for self-control is temperance. Also in the book of Proverbs, chapter 29, verse 11, we read, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man holds it back. You see, our thoughts lead to our emotions, and then we exhibit our emotions in two ways, speech and actions. Starting with speech, the writer of Ecclesiastes says this in 5.2. He says, do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 29, to not let corrupting talk come out of our mouth, only graceful words for building up. James 3.8 warns of the damage the tongue can do and tells us to tame it. Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. We've all been there. We're upset. We can't take it anymore. You're going to let him, she, or them have it? So you let him have it. Besides speech, we take part in this with actions. You see, our emotions can also be exhibited by what we do. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but any, everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. It's something I've struggled with. It's usually funny. I try to do something really quickly and I break it. 
Heidi tells me to slow down. Logan, my son, tells me to slow down. And I want to do it quickly, and I do it wrong. And then my wife says, as every wife says, read the instructions. And I don't read the I just try it, and I do it wrong. That's funny, but there are more serious instances where we do the same thing. I'm going to do it now. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Now, in our study this summer in Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, we also have the deeds of the flesh listed before the fruit of the Spirit. And in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, one of the deeds of the flesh is called fits of anger or outbursts of wrath. Fits of anger or outbursts of wrath. And he lists this in the list of all the sins that are listed there. And what is a fit? A fit is a sudden, uncontrollable outbreak of intense emotion. So I ask, is it really uncontrollable? Really? Well, the Bible says it is controllable. It must be controlled. Galatians 5.21 warns that those who do such things, including fits of, of anger, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sobering words. On the positive side, Paul says in Philippians 4.5, he tells us to let our gentle spirit be known to all men. It's the opposite. Listen to this lengthy quote by Puritan Matthew Henry in dealing with self-control. Can I have my phone? (laughs) Gene's going to put it up here. Puritan Matthew Henry says this about self-control. He says, Here is the good character of a wise and virtuous man implied. He is one that has rule over his own spirit. He maintains the government of himself and of his own appetites and passions and does not suffer them to rebel against reason and conscience. He has the rule of his own thoughts, his desires, his inclinations, his resentments, and keeps them all in good order. The bad case of a vicious man who has not this rule over his own spirit, who when temptations to excess in eating or drinking or before him has no government of himself, when he is provoked, breaks out in exorbitant passions, such a one is like a city that is broken down and without walls. All that is good goes out and forsakes him. All that is evil breaks in upon him. He lies exposed to all the temptations of Satan and becomes an easy prey to that enemy. He is also liable to many troubles and vexations. It is likewise as much a reproach to him as it is to a city to have its walls ruined. Does that describe us? You remember our three goals set out from today's text, to be effective, to be fruitful, and to make our calling and election sure? Self-control is one of the seven qualities listed and is probably the least exhibited, with patience probably ranking a close second. Brothers and sisters, we must supplement our professed faith in Christ with excellence, knowledge, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, and self-control. Again, James says, if you claim to have faith, good. Show me by your life. I came across the following quote online years ago when I first went through this text, and it sticks with me to this very day. The quote goes like this. 
it doesn't matter if you can quote the Bible if you live like you've never opened it. It doesn't matter if you can quote the Bible if you live like you've never opened it. Are we guilty of that today? It doesn't matter if you say you have faith if you don't have fruit to back it up. That's what James is saying. James is not arguing with Paul that salvation is by faith alone. He's saying true faith alone is never really alone. It has supplements, not additions. It reveals itself. So what do we do with this information? I would bet you knew it already before I got up here. What can we do? Well, I have a couple of points of application. Some are simple, some are a little more involved. So as we go through this, make a plan of attack. I have, and I intend to go forward with it by God's grace. The first application point is admission. Admission. Admit you're responsible for your thoughts, emotions, words, and deeds. Admit that you're responsible for your thoughts, emotions, words, and deeds. James 1.13-15 tells us that we're tempted by our own sinful desires. Matthew 12.36, we're warned that every idle word will be judged. Romans 14.12 continues this thought, telling us we'll all have to give an account before God. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before Christ's judgment seat. Just admit it. Then act accordingly. I am a good assigner of blame. I'm, I'm good. It's her fault. It's his fault. You see what you made me do? I wouldn't have done that if he hadn't. I struggle with this. I need to admit it and then act accordingly. Number one, admission. Number two, identification. Identification. Be careful where you walk. Identify the areas in your life where you lack self-control. If you don't know of any, ask your family. They sure know where you lack self-control. Ask your friends. Ask the church family. What seems to set you off? What's the setting? What's the situation? What's the external temptation? Is it the news? Do you find yourself yelling at the television set? Is it social media? Do you find somebody writing something promoting socialism and then terrible words come out of your fingers? Is it television, movies, the internet? Is there a temptation to lust? I'm mostly thinking about outbursts of wrath because it's my middle name. But self-control is in every area. Watch where you walk. Is it somebody particular? Write it down. Identify it. Can you biblically blame that person, place, or thing? No. James 1 counts that out completely. But you can identify what triggers your reaction. Now, let me just say a quick word about triggers. I'm not talking about safe spaces. If somebody triggers you, you go into a padded room and hug a teddy bear. But it's not bad to identify what the trigger is that triggers you. The difference is it's your job to deal with the trigger. We don't remove the trigger. We don't silence the trigger. People are going to say things you don't like, whether it's an important thing like speaking out against the gospel or a silly thing like arguing about which baseball team you like. But either way, the things that trigger you are real. I'm not discounting that they're there. But it's your job to identify them, and when you can, to walk accordingly away from them, and when you're inundated with them, to act accordingly. 
to control yourself, to deal with them. Ephesians 5.15 tells us to walk circumspectly. Psalm 1.1 tells us not to necessarily put ourselves in sin's path. The writer says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Pastor Caleb spoke about a very great example of David with self-control, but we know of another famous example where he did not exercise self-control. Some commentators suggest that David's first sin was not going to war in the spring like the kings always did. He stayed back. He didn't want to go out this time. And you know what happened next. He placed himself in temptation's way. Idleness led him to lust, which led him to adultery, which led him to deception, which led him to murder. Identification. Watch where you walk. Be aware of your triggers. Number three, prepare and practice self-control. What am I going to do next time? It happened this time. Next time, I will. You see, repentance, we know what it means, a change of mind and a change of action. So the next time I am not going to do A, I'm going to do B. Next time, by God's grace, I will run to Christ. I will pray. I will turn. I will walk away. I will shut my mouth. I'll sign offline. We can choose to do this. It's by grace. The Lord has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. This isn't, I'm just going to pull myself up. This is all of grace, but yet we need to walk out our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to do these things. You need to choose this. Titus 2, 11 to 12, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. If anyone knew more about God's sovereignty than Paul, it was none of the saints, and yet he's telling us to live self-controlled and to renounce. He's telling you to do that. What do we do? Make a plan of attack. Prepare. Number four, step back. Step back. What if you're bombarded from something unforeseen? In the heat of the moment, take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. You've heard the phrase Philippians 4, 8 it, which means whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about those things. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Step back. Recall where you're sitting right now. Look around. You have the ability to look to Christ in the heat of the moment. You have the ability because he lives with inside of you. Number five, seek counsel, get accountable. Don't be embarrassed about looking bad. Odds are if you have a problem with self-control, everyone around you knows it. You can't hide that. You can't hide that. There was an episode of the original Star Trek, which I love. My wife hates it. She thinks it's boring with Captain Kirk and, uh, you know, the bad overacting that he did. But there was an episode where, where there was a par- always parallel universes and that, that kind of nonsense. And there was, a, there was a universe where they were like barbarians and they switched places. So in that episode, the good enterprise, the couple that, you know, the, Dr. McCoy and Spock, they, they had to behave like barbarians and they were able to act like it. But the barbarian versions of them couldn't act civilized in in the regular universe, so they were immediately spotted for being imposters because they were, they were not able to hide it. 
If we have a problem with self-control, we're not going to be able to hide it for long. It's going to come out. The next time someone cuts you off, you're going to forget that your brother in Christ is sitting next to you instead of your wife, and then it's all over. Don't be embarrassed. Admit it. Confide, confess to someone who will keep you accountable in this area and who will encourage you to repent. Be accountable. Just be honest with them. And number six, pray, 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 and pray some more. Jesus is the source of all this ability. He is the source. The ability to do good is granted by God alone. It is by grace. I said a minute ago we need to do the work. But the positive result is from God alone. So pray. Pray in preparation of the day in the morning. You know you're going to be on the LIE for an hour and a half to go five blocks. Pray. Pray before possible triggering situation. You're going to go with your in-laws. You got to go. Pray beforehand. Pray during temptation. During it. Don't say to yourself, if he says one more thing, no, pray then. Lord, help me have mercy on them like you have on me daily. And then pray following the event, whether you succeeded or failed that that trial. Thank you, Lord, for seeing me through that. Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me. The next time, which will happen, give me the grace to, and the next day, repeat. We are partakers of the divine nature if we're in Christ. We, by God's divine power, have been given all things that pertain to life and to godliness. Salvation, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the church. 1 Corinthians 2.16 actually says that we have the mind of Christ. By his grace, we have the ability to adorn true faith with the qualities from 2 Peter 1, and it is by the Spirit that we can produce the fruit of the Spirit, especially self-control. And Paul says, against such things there is no law. Developing, exercising these qualities. These things will ensure that we are effective and fruitful for the kingdom. And as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we can gain assurance of our salvation. We can make our calling and election sure. Before I close... Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying if we have an outburst of wrath after the sermon that we lose our salvation. The Lord says of all that the Father has given him, he will lose none. We're not walking a tightrope that when we sin, we lose our salvation. But what I am saying is true faith produces fruit. And if we are living our life and our life is characterized by the list that Paul gives before the fruit of the Spirit, if our life is characterized by the deeds of the flesh, then we have cause to be concerned. Not that we lost our salvation, but we never had it in the first place. Because our faith will show itself in works. So be clear. I want to be clear on that. So as we say, we can know today if we're saved. We can. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're his children. But we need evidences. We don't know our hearts like God does. And that's how come we can encourage each other, we can admonish each other by viewing the fruit in grace. And finally, in closing, we cannot finish this topic on self-control without looking to the ultimate holder of self-control, the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. So I would ask that you would listen. You can close your eyes if you wish. As I read this quote from David Mathis of DesiringGod.org, as he describes the Lord Jesus Christ 
and his self-control. He says this, all his life he was without sin. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He stayed the course even when sweat came like drops of blood. He could have called 12 legions of angels, but he had the wherewithal to not rebut the false charges or defend himself. When reviled, he did not revile in return. They spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him. They scourged him. In every trial and temptation, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And at the pinnacle of his self-control, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he is the one who strengthens us. In Jesus, we have a source for true self-control far beyond that of our feeble selves. Amen.